The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report. I'm Dave Hennessy, and I'm very happy to be watching the fifth episode of the podcast. And we appreciate everyone staying with us for the compelling stories from all of our great guests as we refine our skills in podcast production. Integrity is synonymous with our guest today, Marilyn Hausman, who's the head of HR at Harvard University. I've known Marilyn for a very long time and recently had a chance to sit down with her again and talk about her career. She's been quite purposeful about building a deep HR career across several different industries. And while being so strategic about her career, she also gives a lot of advice about how to maintain balance in life. Marilyn brings up Helen Drynan's name as an important mentor to her. And Helen happens to be our very next guest on the podcast. She's the president of Simmons College, so look forward to that podcast being released, episode six, before the holidays. And I bring you Marilyn Hausman. Well, hello, Marilyn. It's great to be here at Harvard University. Thank you very much, David. It's my pleasure to be with you. Good we, to see you. Same here. We met early 2000s. I think it was 2001. You were head of HR at corporate BCG, and I was a newbie at Keystone Partners, not knowing much. And you were so good to me, Marilyn. I, um, it actually aided my confidence a little bit because I'm like, well, if Marilyn Hausman, the head of HR at BCG, is still talking to me after meeting me a couple of times. Maybe I'm doing something all right. I can make it in this in this HR consulting business. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you for saying those things. That's very kind. And you thank really you. have that reputation of being somebody that treats everyone with equal respect. Um, you're calm under pressure. These I've talked to lots of people about you over the years, and we all agree that you have very high integrity, and you have done really well in your career, and you treat people so well that you work with. So I thought it'd be great for our listeners on this podcast just to learn a little bit about, you know, your background and things that influenced you to make you who you are today. And Well, I would be inclined to say the things that made me who I am are the things that make all of us who we are. You know, certainly I had wonderful teachers. I had a wonderful role model in my dad. Um, and so ways of behaving were uh, expected. I, most people have sort of rules of the road in their family. We don't, let's not say shut up here or whatever. And I took those things to heart. I remember even when my dad was terminally ill, he said to me at one point, you know, you and your sister listened. So I, I think that's true. We did. We listened. Hmm. Um, I did, I did go to parochial school for all of my education, except when I got a master's. And I think that made a difference as well. It's the golden rule to one to others. Mm-hmm. Right. So no, no, no real, uh, mystery in terms of, yeah. What made me well, what was your, you mentioned your dad. What was your dad like? What was some of the things that he instilled in you? Or So my dad was uh, a person who was a foreman in a, in a construction company. He, work mattered very much to him. He uh, raised my sister and I when our mother died when he was just a young man. He was only 35 years old. Um, he loved us deeply. He made sure that we were taken care of. Uh, he did not go to college. He actually had uh, left high school. He became a, a person in the Army during the Second World War. Uh, he was stationed in the Pacific Theater, so things like duty and service mattered a lot to him. He always used to say to my sister and, and to me, make sure that you stay in school. 
uh, make your living by your brains and not your brawn. Uh, and we took that to heart, too. <laughs> he didn't want you to go to the same direction he did, he right? He did not. He did not. And I suppose that's true of all of us. We but, want our children to be better off than we are. Right. Well, in some ways, you have gone in his direction, as you mentioned. So did you pursue this field of human resources? You worked in many industries in HR, but how did you end up in this yeah. arena? So, so, so I didn't really pursue human resources right out of college. I knew that I would work when I graduated from college, but I didn't know what I would do. Uh, and I actually worked at a bank holding company when I graduated from college, and I took a job in the audit department, of all things. By the way, I had an undergraduate degree in liberal arts. And the reason I did that was because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did think to myself, if I were in the audit department, I would get to see all of the operations of this particular company, which was true, the various companies that it held and the various departments and so on. And I would get to do research, loved that. I would get to do analysis, loved that. I would get to report writing, loved, loved that. Remember, I was a liberal arts person. Mm -hmm. And I also liked influencing manager, managers when I did reports and so on. I didn't like, um, in those days, the ticking and tying. It was green the, analysis. The detail. Uh... Yeah, the green analysis pads and, you know, paper and, you know, counting collateral and all that sort of business. And there was a person in the Human Resources Department, it was a small company, I think we had 700 people, who, who had a job, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, had a job that I thought, that looks like a great job, some sort of a job that I was interested in. And when she left uh, that job, I applied for it and got it. And that was the beginning of my Human Resources career. Over the years, I had a chance to leave Human Resources you know, to do other jobs, either in the line or in marketing and so forth. And each time I declined doing that. A little on the theory that when you're in the line at the bank, don't change lines. <laughs> and so I, so I didn't. And, you know, truthfully, I've never looked back. And again, as I said, I made affirmative decisions to make a career out of human resources. Yeah. And what was it early on? You said you looked at her job and you said, hmm, I'm, I'm interested in taking that job. When yeah. she left, what was it about that job? Yeah. So you know, at one point in my life, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do, I actually thought that I might want to be a therapist, you know, again, in terms of, you know, serving people, helping people and so on. But I, as I thought about it, didn't have anything real about it. You know, at the end of the day, um, I wasn't producing something. And I thought human resources was a sort of a marriage of something that was kind of invisible, the in helping piece or, you know, influencing piece, but also visible, mm. you know, that in other words, people were working and they had a job and I had made sure that they were paid appropriately and that they were treated appropriately and developed, et cetera. And so to me, it was sort of a perfect marriage between, again, I'll just use the word the visible and the invisible or the theoretical and the concrete. Right. To get results, exactly. tangible results. Exactly. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So that you know that you, at the end of the day that you were there, mm -hmm. right? See some evidence of that. Right. And you uh, worked in different industries. I, I did. You, soon after that, you must have joined Prime Computer, I which did. was a very hot company it when was. you were there. It yeah. was a, I remember hearing all about that, and um, and you worked in different industries. Are there commonalities with all the different industries you've worked in? You worked in higher ed, ed, obviously. You're at higher higher ed right now. You worked in strategic consulting, financial services, at Thompson, and so maybe a little bit about what you saw in those different arenas. Yeah, well, I, I left financial services after about eight years. No, I did return to it, as you just pointed out. But I was worried about being pigeonholed. I was just afraid that if I didn't leave, remember I had started working now or took my first full-time job when I graduated from college. If I didn't leave, I would be stuck as a financial services person. Ooh, that was smart. 
to change just, careers just early. <laughs> well, it sounds like you were thinking about it. I was, it, so. I was thinking about it, but I was because I don't think you know at that point people would stay with careers for a long time, right? Yeah. They, so that was smart of you to early in your career say, "Okay, I want different experiences." I, I did. I wanted different experiences, and I, I had the theory that I have the theory now that human resources is like I don't know being a finance person, a CFO, whatever. We can do this kind of work in various industries. People are people. So that's, you know, at the end of the day, the stories might change a little bit. The context might change a little bit. But the issues are very similar. And, you know, I think part of the job of a human resources person is to keep your eyes open and discern what is wanted and needed in the particular industry or the particular organization that you work in. But it's not, it's not like going from, I don't know, being a tax specialist to a marketing person, right? Right, right. It's like being in finance could be like being a financer in a lot of different exactly. industries, right? Yeah, HR, exactly. similar. Same idea, same idea. Differences you've seen in the different industries? Uh, let's see. The diff- Yes, you know, so I was thinking about this the other day. You know, when I was first trained in human resources, it was, a, as I said, a small company. It wasn't wealthy. Um, we had to be cautious about... Um, how we were spending money, and so we did a lot of work ourselves. And just let me just give you a small example. If we were going to be recruiting for a particular position, we did our we did our very best to actually recruit. You know, go out, look for people, call people, cold call, all that sort of business. We weren't going to spend money on an agency unless we had to. Let's say. And then when I went to the went to an investment firm, um, time was money, and so because it was wealthy. It was fine. So what mattered is getting the job filled immediately. So sort of the tempo and the and the uh, sort of the constraints of the organizations have varied. So there's been rich ones, there've been poor ones, right. there've been ones that speed matters, there's been one that ones that say you know be thoughtful about this. Mm-hmm. So that's you know that's an example of yeah. So, and then of course the other thing I would say is that the businesses were all different. Right. So you know certainly some commonality, but not not entirely between let's say. Banking and investment, um, you know, again, the, co- the content associated with the, the work itself was similar across all those places I worked. And, and you've worked in very male-dominated industries, right? Maybe till recently. I, I don't know if you'd count Harvard that way. I don't, I don't think so. But um, what about that? And how did you, how did, were you successful in those male-dominated industries? What were the challenges and how did you overcome them? So, you know, when I think about it, so I've had a number of people who were men as my bosses, you know, so one of my, my first human resources boss was a man. So I certainly worked with and for men. Um, it wasn't unusual for me to be one or two of the females uh, in a senior role, although fairness dictates I'm in, a, I'm in the human resources role where there are a lot of us who are in human resources. Um, you know, honestly, That's true. It's probably 70, 80%. Something right. like that. Mm. So, you know, I'd like to tell you that I really thought that it was, you know, I don't know, a big challenge to be working with men. I didn't. I thought well, that was sort of the, the way of the world or the lay of the land. And so my job and everybody else's job is to figure out how do you make it work in this environment with these particular colleagues, mm-hmm. right? And then, I, you know, I, di- I did have occasions where, I, so for example, at Thompson, the person who was the head of IT, which is an unusual job, was a woman. Mm-hmm. You know, so certainly we, you know, developed a particular, you know, partnership and so on along with the CFO. So you, you look for those places that you can be collegial. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would also say that's one of the one of the criteria that you think about when you're taking a job. Are these people that I want to spend my time with? Right. Right. 
How did you get to the highest levels of HR? Because, you know, working in smaller companies, taking over the, the HR department is a little different than when you're head of HR at BCG or Thompson. So how did you get to the top of this function? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's not easy. Yeah, I would say that's true. You know, one, and I'd like to tell you that. So while I knew I wanted to be in human resources and I was happy to stay in it and so forth, I didn't say to myself, I can't wait to be the VP of HR. I didn't say that. It wasn't myself. a goal. I, I didn't. It wasn't. Although I would tell you when I was in graduate school, I actually did take a course called executive development. One of the things you had to ask yourself is, do you want to be an executive? And I remember answering that question, writing the paper about that I did. Mm. But the first chance that I had to be in a top job was at um, what was then Bank of New England South, before Bank of New England South. Bank of New England failed. Again, don't go where I go. Um, <laughs> and uh, I wasn't sure I would take the job when it was offered to me. I was in a job. Um, and I remember I had a conversation with the person who had been the head of HR at Prime, just as sort of like a former mentor, a person that I liked and trusted. And I called him and I told him what I just said to you. And he you know, basically said to me, lean into the wind and take the job, right? And so Again, going back to what my dad said, I listened. <laughs> and I took So take advice take is your big message here. All right, right. I took the advice. And take a chance, too. Take a chance. And yeah. I, you know, I remember, I still say this. I say this to candidates now. What's the worst that can happen? If you don't like it, you'll do something else, right? Right, right. Get up, um, to, get up to the plate, Exactly. Right. right. Um, so, you know, that's how, that's how I, you know, sort of got the first job. You know, and then I think once you sort of begin to break those barriers, if you will, the jobs that you next apply for would be similar in nature, right? Right, because now you're at that level. Exactly, right, yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, that's the story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you, just because I met you when you were at BCG. Right. I mean, I think BCG and McKinsey and Bain, I think those are types of organizations that people wonder what it's like yes, inside. Yeah. I mean, all these, they're um, advising all types of organizations yeah. on what their strategy is going to be, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they hire the best and brightest mm -hmm. And here you are leading the HR function there. What was it like inside BCG in that world? So I would say when I was at BCG, and I'm sure my colleagues who are still there today would say, BCG is a wonderful company. It has an outstanding culture. I think they get rated top places to work. They do. They year after year. Very high. Up very in the high. Fortune, they do. Fortune 500. You know, yeah. I had wonderful colleagues. You're right. There's a lot of uh, brains at BCG, you know, si sidebar that actually helped me, as did my Thompson experience, get a metal, mental model for working here. But, you know, it I'm is... I'm sure Harvard liked that background, of course, when you were recruited here. I, yeah. yeah, I think I, I think that's right. And, you know, recruit from similar kinds of places. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'm not one of those places. You know, I'm not a Harvard person or a Yale person or... Um, so well, I almost went to Harvard. I don't know if I told you this. No, you didn't. Because <laughs> it was just, though, that I didn't have the grades and the SAT scores or the extracurricular curricular activities. But besides that, yeah, you could I was I was coming here. So <laughs> I love it. I just want to go on record. <laughs> All right. It's good to so, know. But continue. It's good to know. Uh, so, you know, it was, I, I, what else can I say about it? It was a great company to work for. Um, I had great colleagues. You know, one of the things that is interesting about BCG is that you could walk down the hallway and there wouldn't be a lot of people because the business isn't there, right? The business is outside, you know, just right. like you, you're here with me today outside of where you are. Right. right? Um, so that is, that's interesting. Right. They're making money when they're at the clients. At the clients. Exactly. Right. Uh, the other thing that I would say that was, you know, really interesting too is because it is such a far flung organization, we could do a lot of work remotely and it had the technology to support that. Mm -hmm. You know, some organizations are still figuring that out today. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that was fun and interesting. It's sort of remarkable that you can do business at, I don't know, nine o'clock at night in your, house and you're talking to Asia, right, who's just at work the right. next day or Very whatever. global company. Very, sure. global, very global company. Um, and so that was, 
you know, that was terrific. And on the topic of global company, I had the opportunity to go to some wonderful places in the world, mm-hmm. um, just because it is so far flung. Very serious about its people, very serious about, you know, the people practices. Mm. And again, as we've already said, you know, sort of led by smart people who took that really really seriously they took the human resources they part did. of it very, very seriously. seriously so no, a great serious. place to great, great practice place your to craft absolutely we're going to talk about harvard a little bit but i want to go into hr and this is the moment where we have the nira question of the podcast Alrighty. and i know you're a former board member of nira yes, so i'm yes, happy to yes. ask this and i know yeah. you, you participate we just saw each other down at the conference last month right here on uh, the very end of october now so the nira question is what advice would you give to an up-and-coming, somebody that's in the HR field and wants to advance in it, what would your advice be? Okay, so let's, let's, let's just start where you um, just ended. So certainly places like NERA do offer all kinds of opportunities for people to learn their craft or to you know, hone, hone the skills that they have. I would say also that, um, you know, I say this to candidates sometimes, opportunity doesn't knock when you want it to knock. And there are people who don't hear the knock. There are people who hear the knock and don't walk through the door. There are people who hear the knock and walk through the door. And so I think it's, I think you want people to be the third one. I do. I want people <laughs> to be the third one. And again, back to what I said a minute ago, what's the worst that could happen, mm-hmm. right? Um, you could take another job, take right, another if you feel. Job. If not, you get a learning experience. It's, exactly. You right. know, and take a little bit of a chance. I just, you know, when we were talking about this, I don't even know where this thought came from. I remember when I was first in my, my first human resources job, I'm 23, the executive committee had come back from a, you know, like a, let's call it a, we would have called it a retreat today. And God knows what I was thinking. I wrote a letter to the president, you know, hearing what, you know, what they had to say about, you know, what happened while they were away. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know where I sort of got the nerve to, you know. (laughs) What did you write? Well, you know, I talked to him about, you know, just make sure that you're not like all surrounded by the rosy glow of spending a few days on the Cape. I think they were on the Cape. You know, make sure that this sort of gets translated to the place that we work. Yeah. And what kind of reaction did you get? I honestly don't, don't remember. I, honestly, <laughs> I don't, well, let me say this way. I still work there. So, okay. you know, it wasn't as if okay. they, I, I don't remember. Right. Um, but part of it is a little around, you know, take a chance and let your voice be heard. You know, if you are in human resources, part of what we get to do is, you know, sort of create the organization, whether that's about, you know, recruiting the people who walk through your door, walk through the door of your company, or if that's about development or, um, you know, sort of, again, how people are paid, treated, et cetera. And you know, sort of look for opportunities. I guess that might, might be wise where I, why I went down the path of the letter I wrote to the president. Like, you know, look for those opportunities where you can influence. Um, look for those opportunities where you can expand your skill, whether that's a special project or volunteering for a committee. You know, um, Helen Drinan was one of my early human resources bosses, now the president of Simmons, Simmons College. And I sure. remember she... She's going to be on this podcast. Is she? Yes. Yeah, she's a. I'm very excited she's a, to interview her. She's a wonderful. And so many great woman. HR leaders have worked for her Absolutely. that are practicing in Boston and elsewhere. I assume too, right, but right, especially right. here. And one of the things I remember Helen talking about is the power of yes, right? The power of yes. Just say yes, right? Yeah. Right. The power of yes. Right. Yeah. How about so? They're a little bit different question, but similar. All right. If you could give a letter of career advice, if you could write a letter. To mm-hmm. your thirty-year-old self, yes. What would you write for advice, dear Marilyn? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good start. I was expecting you might start that way. So let me let me think back. Okay, so when I'm thirty, 
I'm... It doesn't have to be exactly 30. It's well, just kind of a well, throw out. You said 30. All I'm right, back at 30. Right. You don't have to take me literally, <laughs> So I just finished graduate school when I was 30. I just got into master's in business administration. My grandmother died. Um, my husband, whom I met at the company that I started with, left. So you see the moment I had. You know, there was he a, left you or left the he company? He left the company. I know. I was just me. joking. Um, <laughs> he left the company. And so it was a moment where I could do something else. And I actually did. I got another job then. And that, in that moment of, you know, sort of all those transitions, I got another job. And I took a job which was in organizational planning and development because it was project-based. And it had a, the projects had a beginning, middle, and an end because I was thinking at some point I'm going to have a child. And I liked the idea of beginning, middle, and an end, mm-hmm. right? So I would say to myself, kind of something along the line of, you know, one day at a time, you don't have to get it all in. You actually will be able to find a way to have a whole life, you know, to be a parent and a professional and a wife and a homeowner and, you know, a person who was in your community and so on. And I would tell myself not to be so anxious about that because for sure I really felt, I don't I want to say the pressure, you know, how you feel that in your stomach, if you will. Mm. Um, you know, it all, it all works out. Right. So to be kind to yourself, something around that, something good, around that. Good advice to yourself. Yeah. Damn and right. others. <laughs> Maybe we'll shift to Harvard now. Okay. Since we're here. Yep. Um, so practice in HR at Harvard. How's mm-hmm. it different than in the corporate world, because mm. this is different. This is not for profit. You got a lot of brain, brain power here. Yep. What's it? How's it different here? Well, let me tell you how it's the same. So I mentioned, okay. a, I mentioned a minute ago um, that my BCG experience and also my Thompson experience gave me a mental model of working here. And let me say what I meant. Um, so BCG is a large, far-flung organization. The people who ran the offices were kind of like mini presidents. Many presidents, they called office administrators. It had multiple cultures, literally and Depending figuratively. Depending on which site or Wait, country. Exactly. Or, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it had a priestly caste. They're called partners. When I was at Thompson, the entrepreneurs were there. These are the people who founded the business, made the business what it was. You know, at one point had been, you know, the payroll clerk and the head of marketing and, you know, all the way to, you know, being the president and owner of their organization. Another priestly caste. Multiple cultures. Mm. Each of them had, um, each of them were decentralized. Autonomy was almost a theology. And consensus ruled. So BCG is a partnership. Multiple businesses at Thompson, consensus ruled. And so when I came here, I wasn't really surprised to see, you know, sort of in quotations, multiple divisions, the schools, you know, sort of the faculty. The decentralization. The decentralization, yeah. the um, important of consensus. So those kinds of things, and again, remember I've said I think I think we can do this work in any industry. Those kinds of things really helped me, you know, think a little bit about what It was the, familiar. It was right? familiar to me. It gave me yeah. the lay of the land. Right. Gave me the lay of the land. Um, so you're right, it is a nonprofit. This is the first nonprofit that I have worked for. It's a blessing that we don't have the quarterly pressures that you know corporate America does. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also be um, something that sort of slows down immediacy because we don't need to make the we don't need to right. make the quarter, if you will. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I think is different. Right. Those those constant finish lines that show up in the corporate world are somewhat helpful at times. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I am saying. I am. Yeah. I am saying that we are also. Um, the picture that comes to mind is we're in a fishbowl, right? So mm. Harvard News is above the fold. Yes. Uh, you know, in a way that even... Not just here. No. It's an international 
news story right. when Harvard makes news. Right. I think that's right. Um, and even though you know premier companies like Boston Consulting Group are premier, uh, the same kind of you know visibility. Yeah, they're so much more private, right? It's true. Yeah, it is. It's true. So I know. I think that's one of the things that is different working here, and something that I think that we all need to be alert to. Mm-hmm. You have an opportunity, I would imagine, to tap in. I mean, at Harvard, you have the smartest people in almost every discipline of management and leadership and finance and sociology and economics. Are you able to use some of that brain power that's here as, you know, the educators, the thought leaders, the researchers in your work and uh, the HR work? Yeah, you know, we are. So, you know, two, two, two things come easily to mind. So um, we actually have something that's called the University uh, Benefits Committee that is advisory to our provost. And so, for example, our healthcare policy experts are members of that, uh, that it's actually chaired by a healthcare policy expert. And, you know, as you might imagine, as we face the challenges that all large employers do on um, healthcare and the costs and the kinds of things that are happening in the marketplace and new innovations and so forth, it's a wonderful example of having people who have dedicated their lives to this particular topic who know things that the average person doesn't know. So, for example, the, you know, the, the amount of, let's, let's call it medical waste in the system, which has costs associated with what we're all mm-hmm. dealing with. Um, the insurance in between, it's and, all, yeah, that, all that stuff. All that. Yeah. Um, we do have an executive leadership program um, that we put in place, I don't know, maybe two or three years ago. I've lost track of maybe even a little longer, um, which is a multi-month program where people are first identified in all of the schools and units through a talent identification process, and then actually, among other things, get to go to lectures that are provided by our Harvard faculty. As you might expect, people just love that to sure. be on the other side of the you know, the teacher's desk, if you will. Right. Um, Going back to what we were talking about, finance and accounting in the private sector, yeah. It doesn't mean that at Harvard you don't have those financial pressures. Even though you have the large endowment, the very large endowment, you have taken a very proactive stance in making sure that your students are more diverse. And I think I heard it's over 50% at this point. And to encourage that and to reach those goals, you do a lot of discounting on tuition. I don't know if it's called discounting. I don't know what you call it. Finan- finan- financial aid. Financial right. aid. Right. Of yeah. course. How did I not know that? Right. <laughs> right. My son's 12, so I certainly will. You're thinking about I might this. know about that later. Can you talk a little bit about the financial pressures and sure. What, what, yeah, sure. because of all this? Yeah. You know, so in no particular order, yes, we do have a large endowment. A lot of our, much of our endowment is restricted. In other words, the person who gives the gift has it, has it earmarked to be used for this particular thing. So that's that one. Our industry just like financial services and industry. Higher education as an industry is affected by financial pressures in terms of all of the sources of revenue. So tuition is is an example of that. Um, When I went to college, it was 10% of my father's income. And so if you think about a typical private school without financial aid, $50,000 or $60,000, most people don't earn five dollars or $600,000, just as an example. Funding from the government is under pressure. Philanthropy is under pressure and so forth. So, yes, you are right. We do have the experience of financial pressures in our industry and here at Harvard. And to your point, we have made a, we have made a very strong and indelible and lasting commitment to financial aid. We think that, you mentioned the diversity of the students, we think that access to education is life-changing. And if we carry that to the 
um, logical conclusion, it's societal and world changing. So we want to make sure that these kids who may not have the financial wherewithal to attend Harvard, we can make it as easy as possible for them to do so. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. yeah. We talked a little bit before about the decentralization, but mm. you also have a concept here that I've heard about called One Harvard. Yes. How do you reconcile this decentralized approach with what you're trying to do with One Harvard? And you know, I think you, I think you look for, you know, what is, what is that old saying? You know, consistency is what's that about? You know, the hobgoblin, the small minds, or something <laughs> like that. So, but I think you look at those places where consistency and standardization makes sense and where it doesn't. Mm. Right again, having come from decentralized organization, there's a lot to be said for decentralized decentralizations where innovation and creativity, and by the way, being close to the work really matters. And, you know, just to use the analogy of corporate industry, our industry, we're in different kind of businesses. The medical school isn't the business school, isn't the law school, mm -hmm. right? Or let alone, you know, the design school, the divinity school, or the ed school, and so on, education right. school. Um, so we look for the places that it matters to be similar. We make ways, we identify ways to collaborate so that we're not reinventing the wheel between you and me. You know, so certainly if you've done something that can be leveraged elsewhere, we look for those opportunities. In the human resources world, we have a very closely knit network of human resources deans and directors who get together on a at least a monthly basis, if not more, oh, wow. across the university and look for ways that actually every year we agree what are the three, four, five priorities we're going to take as a whole. And is that part specifically of this one Harvard concept, or is it not necessarily? Well, I, I see it very much as related to the one Harvard concept. Mm. Um, so we say to ourselves, what are the things that we need to put the full weight and heft of all of the human resources people behind us, as an example of one Harvard? But, you know, the way I, I have sort of a simple analogy when I think about this. So if you live in a family, which I know you do, um, and I do, um, so if there's three or four or five of us in our family, we're not the same, but we're still, we all have our own identities, but we're still part of something bigger than ourselves as individuals. Mm -hmm. You know, I use the little picture of the hand, you know, there's one hand and five fingers and right. the little one is different than the pointer, right. right? Right. But you're still part of one whole. And so that's how I conceive about that, how I conceptualize this. You know, can it be ambiguous? Sure. Can it be a little uh, complex and confu confusing? Sure. You know, on the other hand, it just does seem like a higher order, you know, to find ways to be represented as this whole, right? So right. That's how I think yeah, about it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right, now we're going to ask some silly stuff. I'm ready. So do you have a secret life hack, and can you share that with us? Well, since I don't know what a life hack is, no. <laughs> <laughs> What's a life hack? Oh, I, like a little trick that gets you through and makes life more efficient or easier or more enjoyable? Was there any little tricks that you do to help well, get through? Well, you know, so so I've dedicated a lot of my time and energy and my identity to work, and I, I really do believe that. And, you know, sometimes I think it might be actually too excess, you know, in terms of how important work has been in my career. But there is a little part of me in the back of my mind that reminds me it's not exhaustive of who I am or what my life is, right? Mm -hmm that I have a family, you know, I have people who love me, I have friends, I have a church, I have a community, you know, I have lots of things that that are little oases that I, you know, can go to. Uh, so that, you know, that's something that comes to mind. You mm. know, I would also say early in my career, reluctantly, I might add, I looked for those places that could help me, you know, whether that was 
somebody who could help take care of the children or somebody who could clean the house if I couldn't. Mm. Um, and so to the extent that I could find some sort of a support, by the way, let me assure you, I couldn't afford that at the time, but it was cheaper than a psychiatrist or a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, that's something that comes to mind, too. So you made some sacrifices made there some sacrifices to, to hold it all to together. To hold it all together. Right, right. right. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Maybe this is part of the same question, but uh, what gives you energy? Other people. I'm an extrovert. Debate. Ideas brainstorming, um, being in a group of people and doing our very best work, trying really hard to solve a problem and do our very best work. Those are the kinds of things in, you know, and work that give me energy. And favorite movie? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm, you know, I'm one of those people that so certainly have seen a lot of movies, but they don't stay in my head. Um, so I can't name. I'm more of a book person. Oh, okay. Um, we'll, we'll switch to book. Then. All right. We'll switch to book. Or one of your favorite books. One of my, so, we don't so, have to. Yes, name we won't hold you to it. We won't hold you to it. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Um, you know, so I, I am having been, a, as I said, a liberal arts major, I, I tend towards novels. Mm-hmm. I tend towards historical novels. Uh, if I tried to sub, sub, do a little more subset, even associated with that, of late I've been reading um, historical novels associated with artists. I just finished one called The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos. So apparently in the 1600s, there were a couple of women who were, this is, this is historically true, who were admitted to the Guild of St. Luke, which you needed to be in, in the Netherlands um, to be acknowledged as an artist. So this, that was an interesting story. Uh, way ahead of their time, I imagine. Way ahead, it was way not ahead of their common time. Not for common. Not common. Not common. And, you know, and you're not surprised to hear that for some of these women, for centuries, their work was attributed to a man. Yes. Or in some cases, their father, who might have also been a painter. Yesterday, I bought... This is an Oh, would you recommend that book, by the way? I would recommend okay. that book. I would recommend that book. Right. Yesterday, it's not a novel, but along a similar line, uh, there's a biography, a biography about Leonardo da Vinci. So I bought that too. So uh, art, art, and then novels, I, novels, art history. Yep. Interesting. Yep. And sometimes I have an author because, along with, by the way, the last thing I needed is another book, but I bought two yesterday: the da Vinci one, and then the latest book by Alice. I think it's the latest by Alice Hoffman. She's the person who wrote the Dove Keepers a long time ago, so I like her. I think this is called The Rules of Magic. Great. Yeah. I'm a reader. Yes, it sounds like it. <laughs> sounds like a voracious reader. Well, thank you so much, Marilyn, My for being pleasure. on the podcast. This has been really fun. My pleasure. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.